This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Faskin's emerging tech and venture capital practice is comprised of 80-plus dedicated legal professionals across the Canadian market. We're deeply involved in the startup ecosystem and have worked closely with founders from startup to scale to exit. Our team is a leading Canadian law firm for VC financings and tech M&A and act for many of the best-in-class startup and scale-up innovation-based companies and entrepreneurs in Canada. Given this experience, we understand market trends and can assist in guiding your company forward as you scale. We take a holistic and strategic approach to helping our clients achieve their goals and provide the full suite of services including corporate, corporate finance, M&A, commercial, IP, data and compliance, employment, tax and beyond. We are excited to help the next generation of unicorns. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind the scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Chris Newman. Chris is a partner at Panache Ventures. Panache Ventures is Canada's most active seed stage venture capital fund. Panache is led by a team of experienced operators with a strong angel investor track record, years of institutional VC experience, and a strong network in Canada, in Silicon Valley, and worldwide. In this episode, we discuss building and selling his first company, Data Hero, what makes a great accelerator, why we need more venture funds, and what they should look like why Canada and Canadian cities should stop comparing themselves to Silicon Valley, and his fantastic blog, The Quiet Part Out Loud, that gives founders great insights. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris Newman. So Chris, you went to Stanford in the early 2000s with the tech crash there, and obviously some interesting companies had been founded by Stanford graduates around that time, like Google. Uh, What was that time like being at Stanford? Yeah, Stanford in 2002 was really interesting. Um, So you have to remember this came right out of the dot-com crash. And what happened that year is applications for grad school, specifically in computer science, uh, spiked. 
Uh, you know, in some schools, it was three, four, five X as many applications, whereas during the dot-com boom, everyone was kind of working on startups and, and nobody was going to school. So there was an incredible number of people from all over the world that were coming in there. And, you know, we had the opportunity not only to learn from some absolutely fantastic professors, but they were bringing in speakers, and guest lecturers and things like that, who'd been a part of all sorts of incredible companies. Um, you know, in those days, for example... Uh, the Stanford Z School, the design school, was just a prototype. Uh, so I had the opportunity to be a, a participant in the very first prototype class for that, taught by the founder of IDEO. Uh, you know, and so some of these experiences were, were you know, quite, uh, quite transformational and, and foundational for me. And what was one of your first work experiences? I saw Aster Data and you were there for, you know, over five years. Was that one of your first experiences out of school? And was that really foundational to you as an invest, you know, you're an investor today, but, you know, foundational to you with your career? So I did a bit of work during and before the dot-com boom. So when I was up in Vancouver uh, doing my undergrad degree at, at uh, Simon Fraser University, uh, like most folks, I did some co-op terms. So for example, my first uh, job in tech was actually working for BC Tel back before it was called TELUS working on Y2K software. So literally going into billing software for DSL, if you remember what that is, and trying to make sure that come, you know, midnight on uh, the year 2000, that everything wasn't going to crash. Uh, and so that was my, that was my entry into, into corporate computer science, um, was a part of a startup in those days, didn't really go anywhere. Uh, and then coming out of Stanford, uh, my first kind of uh, position was actually working for Motorola. Uh, Motorola at the time, the Razor was the hottest phone on the planet. They had brought together a, a new office in Silicon Valley to try and work on some of the next generation stuff that was going to come out of there. And the most prominent project to come out of that group was actually one of the biggest tech disasters ever, which is the joint venture phone between Apple and Motorola called the E1 Rocker which if you're old enough to remember that, it's probably the only one more thing presentation Steve Jobs ever did where he visibly cringed on stage because the damn thing didn't work. I'm not familiar with that phone. What was, it, was it a flop? What happened with that? Oh, it was, a, it was another flop. So, um, you know, in those days, Motorola was the clear leader when it came to mobile hardware, right? They had the hottest phone on the planet. They had a reputation for building incredible hardware. Apple was coming into its own. The iPod, uh, you know, was was really coming in as the the mainstay of music. And of course, the the thinking was let's put these two things together. So there was a joint venture between Motorola and Apple, where they ostensibly took a Motorola phone and put a very very early version of iTunes onto that phone. Uh, the problem was between both companies, they were a complete cultural mash. Right. The, these companies had nothing to do with each other, they didn't work the same way. The phone itself just didn't work. Uh, and you had this, what I think was a $350 US phone, which in those days was quite preposterous price wise, that couldn't even fit 100 songs, didn't work, didn't have battery life, and, and, and was just an utter, utter flop. Uh, after that, you know, uh, a number of folks who I'd worked on on that on the Motorola side left to join Apple and Apple made the decision to go and, and create their own phone, sensing that there was a pretty clear cut opportunity because the existing phone behemoths, Motorola and Nokia, um, most notably knew how to do hardware. They didn't have a clue how to do software. And that created an opening for you know, what became the iPhone and, and what we all know and, and are, are pretty prevalent about today. And I'm very curious about the data hero. So was that your first time as a founder? Like obviously you had this very interesting work experience, you know, you went to Stanford. Did, did you have any, did you try starting other things before or was data hero really your first time as a founder? Data hero was the first company that I founded. Uh, so prior to that, I spent five years as the first employee at a company called Astro data, which is one of the companies that helped to invent big data. Uh, during that time, the focus on data analytics within organizations was very much in, uh, you know, internal data groups, right? So if you wanted to make sense of data, there was a team and that team was responsible for working with SQL databases and sort of fairly complex programs to make sense of it. 
at that time, we were starting to experience the growth of cloud software. So things like Google Analytics, Salesforce, HubSpot, so on and so forth, were just starting to gain popularity. Uh, while at Astrodata, working with the customers, we saw a, a sharp increase in the number of business users of these cloud software platforms who are going to their data groups going, hey, we've got all this data that it's in the cloud. We need to analyze it to make better business decisions. And they didn't have an effective way to get the data out to make sense of it. And they didn't generally have the priority within the data groups that were tasked with some pretty, pretty high priority stuff to get somebody to help them. And so the idea with Data Hero was to create the world's first cloud native business intelligence product, which instead of requiring you to pull the data out of the cloud, put it into an on-premise SQL database with a BI tool on top of it to make sense of it. What if we created something that lived in the cloud, directly connected to all of these cloud services, automatically normalized the data using machine learning, and enabled business users to just drag and drop and get the insights they needed? And so when Astrodata was acquired in 2011, following that acquisition, uh, I left and co-founded Data Hero. What was the cloud space like in 2011? Like, if you look at it today, it's, it seems very obvious. It's huge. It's a massive market. Everyone you know, understands what cloud means. What was it like in 2011, 2012? In those days, it wasn't apparent that the cloud was going to become as big as it has. Uh, the main reason being that organizations were very nervous about having core data outside of the walls of the organization, right outside of their own IT departments. Uh, and so we were sort of in this, uh, you know, if you think about crossing the chasm, right? In those days, we were very much before the chasm where it was predominantly startups that were using cloud services or for larger organizations, they were using cloud services for non-core activities. Uh, you know, we saw things like, you know, SurveyMonkey, for example, right? Large organizations would use them for customer surveys, but they weren't going to put their like super, super important data in there. Um, you know, in the years following that, we saw that tip, that tipping point where, you know, it became clear that the cost savings, the ability to effectively reduce the size of IT departments and not have to be responsible for, for building and managing these always on infrastructure. And the fact that many of these services became very um, solid from a security and from an infrastructure standpoint led to you know, very prevalent adoption and, and the situation we have today, which is most organizations don't even think about doing something on-premise. Why would you do that when you could put it on Amazon or Google or Azure or whatever the case may be? And ultimately, the business was acquired. What was that acquisition process like as a first-time founder? I'm assuming you maybe had some mentors, you had investors to maybe help you guide you through that. But what was that like as a first-time founder? It's really interesting in that both acquisitions that I've been through on the software side, so both Acerdata and Data Hero, were acquisitions that took place as a result of market forces um, creating an urgency. Uh, in the case of Acerdata, what happened is there were five companies that uh, were kind of doing similar things in this space, and they were all competitors. They'd all raised kind of Series B, Series C. You know, in the case of Astrodata, we raised about sixty million US. Uh, and the idea with most of these companies were let's build you know kind of long term organizations. Uh, and then one day IBM came along and bought one of those companies. They acquired a company called Natiza, and all of a sudden IBM's competitors, right, companies like HP and EMC started going, oh, crap, we need to have a big data play as well, or IBM's going to eat our lunch. And so a game of musical chairs happened, where within the span of about 18 months, every company in the big data space got acquired. Uh, Astrodata was acquired by Teradata. Vertico was acquired by HP. Um, there's a company called Greenplum acquired by EMC, and then a company called Paracel that was actually acquired by Amazon uh, and became Amazon Redshift. And so that entire industry kind of vanished overnight as a standalone industry. Uh, in the case of Data Hero, the market dynamic that happened was we had created this, uh, what was really the first cloud BI platform, first self-service cloud BI platform. And during that time, 
um, both Google and Microsoft came out with competing products. Google had Data Studio uh, and you know, Microsoft had Power BI. Both of them effectively put them out as free products. And they decided we're going to make these loss leaders uh, for other products that we sell. And so at that point, we saw the writing on the wall and went, okay, you know, if two of the big software behemoths are giving away competitors to what we're doing for free, uh, this probably isn't going to be a long-term you know, venture scale. Exit. And so uh, at that point, we had had some inbound interest for acquisitions. We started to dig in on that. Uh, and then we closed an acquisition uh, in about 2015. And what happened after that acquisition? I'm assuming maybe you took some time off and you kind of reevaluated what your priorities were. And ultimately, you kind of jumped in with like 500 startups and Commonwealth Ventures. Why did you pivot more to like the venture side of things, company creation um, side of things? So there were a few things that happened. So first of all, um, at that point, I had done about 10 years of nonstop high-intensity startups. You know, Astrodata rolled right into Data Hero. Um, when Data Hero was acquired, there was actually a subsequent company uh, that similar concept where one of my co-founders and I looked at it and went, okay, there's an opportunity right here, you know, let's get on. Uh, and so we took a little bit of time off and, and she and I came back and said, Hey, look, this is a really interesting opportunity. It was in data analytics around, uh, digital marketing. Uh, and so we actually started a company, uh, company had a, had a code name. It was called project stag. Uh, we had several engineers that we bootstrapped and we built out the prototype. We started doing alpha testing with customers. Uh, we saw that there was a market for this uh, and, you know, kind of got it to the point where we said, okay, this is a company that we're going to have to raise um, uh, VC capital for. It's not one that we can bootstrap the entire way. Um, went out one night and, you know, had a couple of drinks and, and uh, my co-founder looked at me and said, I don't want to spend the next 10 years doing this. I just don't care about this problem. And I looked at her back and I said, neither do I. Uh, and the next day we shut down the company. Uh, and so, you know, that was a company that never saw the light of day. Uh, and, you know, after that, we both took a little time off and said, hey, you know what? Doesn't feel like either one of us has an idea that's super pressing as the thing we want to spend 10 years on. So maybe let's start exploring. And so after that, we actually spent time consulting with other startups. Um, so we had a consulting firm. It was called uh, The Engineer and the Designer. Uh, I was the engineer. She was the designer. And we went, we did a lot of product and business consulting for kind of Series A and Series B startups in, in the Bay Area, getting to see all sorts of different things that were going on, what was interesting. Um, and at the time, we'd both been exploring kind of where did we, where did we want to end up? And in, in the case of my co-founder, she wanted to go back into an operating uh, and she ended up joining um, a, I think it was about a series A or a series B startup down there uh, as head of design. Um, and I started looking a little bit more to the mentorship, the VC, that angle. I've been doing some angel investing point, uh, and an opportunity came up with uh, some folks who I knew who said, hey, look, you know, 500 startups is, is looking to add somebody to the team, particularly somebody with a background in data, AI, and machine learning, which is, which is where I, I cut my teeth. Um, and they had this idea, uh, uh, there's this notion of an entrepreneur in residence, which you might've heard the term, uh, an entrepreneur in residence is really a fancy term for an intern, right? If you want to think about it. And so it's a, it's a role that allows you to come into a VC, spend, you know, three, six months there, help out their portfolio companies, get involved in investment decisions and, and sort of in return, you get to see what that experience is like and kind of get to test it out. Um, and so I went in there and, and, you know, participated in, in the first batch that, that, uh, you know, went through and went, wow, this is, this is really cool. You know, it turned out after, you know, about a dozen years in startups, I had a decent amount of, of kind of knowledge to share. And I found really drawn to helping founders out on the early stages of their journeys. Uh, so I joined 500 startups full time, uh, ended up launching an entire accelerator for them, um, called the data track, which was focused on data and AI companies then ended up really kind of leading the enterprise side of that accelerator, both in San Francisco and, and you know, had the opportunity to uh, help stand up accelerators all over the world. Um, you know, did accelerators in everywhere from Kobe, Japan to Muscat, Oman in the Middle East. 
uh, and really was was finding myself drawn to the um, opportunity to help really early stage founders, uh, you know, on that that uh, discovery point between formation and, and product market. What do you think makes a great accelerator? Obviously, there's potentially a hundred things that can make a great accelerator, but is there just you know one, two, three major things that you think really sets it up for success? The only thing that matters for accelerators is who are the mentors, who are the instructors. Um, the reality is 99% of accelerators around the world are crap. And it's not because they're not well-meaning. It's because the majority of people who operate accelerators and work at accelerators and provide mentorship at accelerators haven't actually seen what success looks like. You know, so in, in many cases, it's an exercise of the blind leading the blind. Or, you know, if you think about a school analogy, right, the, the participants are in first grade and you're being taught by second graders, but they actually have no idea what you need to get to college. Um, and so there really are very few programs around the world that have been able to consistently attract very high quality um, teachers right to to provide insights and to provide um experience to founders and and you know one of the big reasons why the bay area accelerators historically are the best performing is because there's that density of of experience there it's very easy to say hey you know super experienced founder or vc or whatever can you stop by one night for an hour and, and do a session for the founders? Yeah, let me do it on my lunch break, right? You can't do that anywhere else in the world. Uh, you have to do a lot more planning. You have to do a lot more more logistical work uh, to bring in folks who have the experience that really the, the founders would benefit from. Can we chat a little bit about Commonwealth Ventures? What was that? What was the genesis behind that? And ultimately, kind of an acquisition deal with Panache there, and, and why did that take place? So I left uh, 500 startups and had been really interested in this question of why is it that certain founders that and certain startups that 500 would invest in, right? The, the 500 flagship accelerator in San Francisco would invest globally. We'd invest in founders from all over the world, bring them to San Francisco for four months. A um, small number of them would stay in the Bay Area, but the vast majority would go home and to their home countries and build their companies. And I was really interested in the question, why do some of these companies succeed? And why do some of these companies seem to end up not taking advantage of what they learned in the Bay Area, right? Normal bell curve of, of startups notwithstanding. And what I had found over the years was that the two countries that had the highest success rates when it came to founders you know, taking advantage of US accelerators, not just 500, but elsewhere, were Canada and the UK. Um, Canada and the UK are almost identical startup ecosystems. So um, if you if you kind of start with the, the understanding that the UK is about twice the size of Canada by most metrics, GDP, things like that, the startup ecosystems have very similar dynamics. The governments have gotten involved in similar manners. The evolution of their VC ecosystems have been similar. Culturally, we're very similar, both on the personal culture and the business culture. Um, we've had similar challenges in terms of entering the U.S. market historically, but we also culturally understand or think we understand how the U.S. market works, right? And so as opposed to founders from other countries who would come to America for the first time and just be like, well, what is going on with this place? Like, we don't understand this. And they'd have to wrap their personal brain around American culture. Canadians and Brits, by and large, you know, we, we, we get it. We're close enough. And so Commonwealth Ventures was founded specifically to help top-tier startups in Canada and the UK more effectively raise capital from Silicon Valley VCs. Because what I'd seen on the ground was I'd seen countless founders from those countries who had all of the metrics that you would see in a US founder that would raise a competitive round, but they would come to San Francisco and two things would happen. Number one, they weren't able to get introductions. So even if they had 
raised money from the best, you know, say pre-seed fund in Canada or the best pre-seed fund in, you know, the UK. When they went to those VCs and said, okay, here's the list of Silicon Valley folks I want to talk to. Who do you know? They avoid eye contact and they wouldn't be able to help, right? And it turns out that the vast majority of VCs in Canada and the UK spend zero time building relationships with Silicon Valley VCs. And I've been pretty vocal about this, uh, you know, before and since coming back to Canada. In the Bay Area, the average VC spends about a third of their time doing nothing more than networking with other VCs. A third of their job is getting to know other investors so that they can make those connections. The general wisdom of VCs in the Bay Area is your number one job as an investor after the check is written is helping your founders get the next check. And Canadian VCs and, and UK VCs, by and large, that hasn't been a priority. You know, in Canada, you don't need to spend time networking with other Canadian VCs because there really aren't that many of them, right? You'll naturally see them at conferences and events and CDL and things like that. And so we'd see all these founders come to San Francisco and they'd have to go cold turkey, you know, kind of making those introductions. But then also when they went pitched, they didn't understand the nuances of fundraising in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley has market dynamics that are globally unique. Um, you know, there are almost 2,000 VCs in the 46 miles between San Francisco and San Jose. That's 10 times more than all of Canada. It's about five times more than the UK, right? Similar ratios. And so you can't fundraise the same way you do in other countries if you're trying to effectively raise in, in the US. You have to do a lot more preparation. You have to present your information differently. And so the genesis of Commonwealth was, can we help solve these problems? Can we find these founders who are really building incredible companies in Canada and the UK, put them through a program that helps them to wrap their heads around why and how fundraising in Silicon Valley is going to be different and why you have to take a different approach than what worked for you in your home country, and then help them to, to get those introductions. Um, and so we did that in the first year, we helped companies raise over a hundred million dollars in, um, seed and series A capital. So, okay, this is, this is a good plan. Seems to be working. Um, now the original idea with Commonwealth was actually to, uh, prove out the accelerator in Bay area and then launch a USDC fund to wrap around it. So, you know, the original plan was that this was going to be a San Francisco based organization. Uh, but a funny thing happened during our initial prototypes. What we found was that Canadian startups vastly outperformed UK startups. In fact, more than 90% of the capital that was raised was by Canadian startups. And that didn't make sense by the numbers. The key difference was the behavior of American VCs. As much as American VCs overtly were saying, hey, we'll invest in great startups anywhere, the reality is that the vast majority still struggled to wrap their heads around investing on a different continent. So even though legally it is incredibly easy for a USVC to invest in a UK company, pragmatically speaking, they weren't doing it. You know, ah, it's a different country. Ah, it's a different time zone. Ah, it's a different accent. All of these sorts of things. Meanwhile, today, USVCs by and large have no problems uh, investing in Canadian domiciled companies, which is a big change from even five years ago when the conventional conversation was, well, we'll invest in you, but you need to be a Delaware C Corp. Um, this is, uh, I'll describe to people, the, the first and only time that it has ever been good to be treated like the 51st state. It is a net good thing for Canadian founders. And so with that, um, we flipped the plan and said, okay, instead of making a Silicon Valley, a San Francisco-based VC, Let's go back to Canada and let's do something north of the border. Um, now, how did that come to Panache? Well, let's pull on a couple of threads. Once upon a time, Panache Ventures was known as 500 Startups Canada. And so I had had the opportunity to work with the founders of Panache, uh, Pat Moore and Mike Sigelski, when we were all affiliated with 500. They were running the Canadian franchise of 500 Startups. I was helping to run the flagship accelerator down in SF. And when we started talking and, you know, I indicated that, hey, I'm, I'm looking to come back to Canada. You know, we think there's an opportunity here. 
they were actually looking to add a new partner to the team on the West Coast, uh, and it seemed a little bit too good to be true. And so we uh, got together, we locked ourselves in a room in Montreal for a week to see, hey, do we actually like each other that much? And, you know, by the end of it, it was, it was pretty obvious that, you know, one plus one equals five. Uh, and so at that point, we made the decision, hey, let's, let's put these things together. Let's bring Commonwealth into Panache. Let's continue to run these accelerators for the benefit of the Canadian companies. And let's use that as a platform to help move Canadian startups and Canadian venture. You mentioned a few different things there. So from like a venture perspective, you mentioned the how many more VCs there are in the Bay Area compared to Canada. Do you think that dynamic will change in Canada? Do you think that we need more VCs or do we think or do you think we have enough VCs and startups should be like looking south of the border more? What do you think about that kind of dynamic venture wise? There's two parts to that question. Um, number one, should we have more VCs in general? And should the ratio be different relative to Silicon Valley? So, so I'll start in reverse order. Silicon Valley is globally unique. And, and you'll notice as I'm talking about this, I'm not talking about the US. I'm specifically talking about Silicon Valley. It is a unique capital ecosystem. Um, the ratio of VCs to kind of GDP, startup creation, things like that in Canada is actually on par with other countries. So, you know, an important thing and, and a thing that in general, Canada and most countries need to get away from is comparing themselves to Silicon Valley. It's not a comparison. Silicon Valley is its own special thing. The better comparison is how is Canada doing relative to other non-American startup ecosystems? How is it doing relative to the UK? How's it doing relative to Germany? How's it doing relative to Singapore and so on and so forth? By those metrics, um, we roughly have the right number of VCs, but the particular mix we have is not ideal. Um, I am very vocal about the fact that Canada does not have nearly enough pre-seed VCs. We are a very conservative nation. The history of our VC class is traditionally one that is conservative, that starts at the later stages. So the problem is right now, we have a lot of large VCs that make consensus bets. What we're missing is a number of smaller capital allocators that can take unusual bets, right? We need not necessarily more capital. We need more capital allocators. We need more people in positions of making decisions and making contrarian decisions so that startups that come to market in Canada that don't necessarily look like something that came before them can still gain access to that capital. Um, we've been very lucky as a country that our early stage capitalization has been heavily, heavily subsidized by angels. Um, were it not for the incredible class of angel investors we have in Canada, and, and many people might know this, there are individuals in Canada who regularly write 250K, 500K checks. Like that's very unusual. If it were not for that prevalence, um, we would have a very different ecosystem here. And I think that's something that we've taken for granted. Um, I think we need to find ways to make it easier for first-time VCs, solo GPs, who don't necessarily have a track record to start a 5, 10, 15, $20 million fund, right? We keep having these programs, you know, the government to their credit is trying to subsidize the creation of VCs, but the incentives aren't necessarily aligned. Right. So a government will come out, whether it's federal or provincial and say, OK, we're going to create three new VCs. We're going to give 50 million to each of them and they need to find another 50 or 100 million. You're not creating brand new risk taking VCs. You're creating more very large, very conservative funds. Right. And, you know, when you're talking about allocating 50 million dollars, you're going to allocate 50 million dollars into a repeat GPU with a very lengthy track record who is a safe right? We don't need any more of those, in my opinion. We don't need more safe bets. We need more smaller, nimble, risk-taking funds, understanding that some of those funds will work. And just like startups, many of them won't, but that's important. How do you think about that recipe, right? Like, obviously, like maybe LPs, maybe a bit more risk-adverse, but on the flip side, do we have like the proper emerging managers? Are they coming from existing VCs? Should they be coming 
net new from maybe they spent 10 years at Shopify, for example. Like, what do you think are the pieces for that recipe that we need to get right? And maybe we're, maybe we're doing well in certain areas, but less well in others. It starts with access to LP cap. Um, Canada does not domestically have any institutional LPs that are purely financially driven. Um, in the U.S., there are organizations, for example, like Sendana, that is a fund of funds for emerging managers. Literally, they are like the pre-seed LP, right? They invest in first and second time uh, GPs. There's nothing like that in Canada. Um, you know, it is very hard as a first-time fund manager, even if you've got a lengthy track record, to raise what in the U.S. is a nominal amount of money. Raising five or ten million dollars as a first-time GP in Canada is very hard. In the U.S., it's not easy, but it is easier. Um, you know, I think there's a variety of ways we could make that easier. You know, on one end of the spectrum, we do have the the benefit of governments that are looking to put capital into the ecosystem. They haven't necessarily been good at deploying that in really risky first-time folks, but you know, the heart is in the right place. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of LPs that invest in funds, um, you know, relative to other places, right? You know, we're a country that likes to invest in real estate. We're a country that likes to invest in more conservative um, financial products. Uh, so I don't necessarily know what the solution is. You know, if it was, if it was an easy solution, uh, then, then it would be done already. Um, but I do know that as, a, as an ecosystem, we would certainly benefit from creating a path for more reasonably credible individuals and, and not being prescriptive about the path, not saying, look, you must have been a VC before. You must have been at a top tier firm. Maybe you were, you know, 10 years at Shopify, but even that is a pedigree background, right? You know, what we need is, is folks who, who've come from completely different backgrounds. Um, and, and I mean that by, by, all, uh, by all manners of interpretation of that. Right, folks who want to create something, and maybe they've done angel investing, maybe they've done startups, maybe they've done whatever they might have done. Um, but I think we would do well to have a lot more uh, diverse voices allocating capital in the country. You know, we're, we're as a country, we know hockey, right? And you know, we know what the NHL looks like. We need more different, you know, teams for five and six and seven year olds, right? with different styles and different approaches. And, and, you know, some of them might not look like what we've had before. What do you think about the ecosystem right now? Like, have you seen Canadian founders mindset change over the last few years? Again, you know, like not looking to compare to Silicon Valley, we should compare ourselves to other similar countries, but what do you think about, has that mindset mindset change for founders are the ambitions larger like what's that current kind of ecosystem look like in canada from an investor's perspective the inherent conservatism that we have in canada is sometimes a good thing uh, and so you know in the last couple of years when we had very low interest rates and capital was quite available one thing we didn't see in canada was founders just lavishly spending and i think that's incredible Right. So when, when we started to see the writing on the wall kind of, you know, two years ago last year that, hey, the market's going to change. And, you know, VCs and others started saying to Canadian founders, hey, look, you know, let's, let's be a little more cautious with our spending. Number one, by and large, they listened. But number two, most didn't really have to change a lot. You know, we weren't seeing this sort of over the top exuberance that we saw in, in the US. Right. And, and so, um, you know, I think that's a, a net good thing. Right, we we tend to be more pragmatic as 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 founders and as as individuals, uh, and a little more more um, cautious with our spending, um, you know. And and although we have seen layoffs in Canada, those layoffs were overwhelmingly, hey, we hired too many people, or we made the wrong momentum bet, uh, as opposed to you know we did something that was just core, not a good business decision. Um, and so I think you know as an ecosystem. Um, those are okay things to make, right? It, it hurts when layoffs happen. It's not good for anyone, but you know, we're not seeing layoffs by and large where it's like, Hey, we had to lay off people because 
you know, the founders bought a private jet and, you know, we moved into this headquarters with gold toilets and all this kind of stuff. It was mostly, hey, we hired ahead of the curve, um, which frankly, a lot of organizations around the world did. Um, in terms of ambition, you know, I think a big change that we have seen, um, and this is a good one for Canadian founders, is, is Canadian founders are no longer um, resigning themselves to just Canadian VCs as a source of capital. You know, we're seeing Canadian founders on day one say, look, I'm sure I'll talk to the Canadian VCs, but I'm also going to go straight to New York. I'm going to go straight to Silicon Valley. I'm going to go straight to wherever. Um, you know, we're seeing more and more pre-seed deals happen, um, particularly in Vancouver and Toronto. These are, this is where we're seeing this the most, where the very first round of capital includes, or in some cases is led by U.S. investors. We never saw that before. Uh, you know, we saw Canadian founders kind of go the normal Canadian route. And if they couldn't raise from a VC, bumble around and try to find, you know, angel capital. And, and now they're saying, look, I'm, I'm going to go where the money is. Um, that makes it more work for folks like me, right? Because now I'm having to compete on day one with American investors with more resources and, and things like that. But you know what? I'll take that all day long. That is net good for the Canadian ecosystem. And I think that's a huge, huge difference uh, in terms of the confidence the Canadian founders have and, and this sort of, for lack of a better term, reduction in the conceptual wall that exists between you know, uh, Canada and, and the United States. And I think this goes back, you know, this goes back 20 years to, to even the, the genesis of C100, which was really at the end of the day, an organization that was founded simply to help Canadian founders understand San Francisco is not that far away. You know, and I think we're seeing, you know, those decades of work really come to fruition and in, in impacting the, the mindset of Canadian founders. What's the quiet part out loud? And, you know, we've kind of even chatted about a few subjects that you've written about. I guess what was like the genesis behind writing about these things? I think it's really created a lot of traction, especially here in Canada, because maybe not other other VCs are as vocal or talking about these things. Um, what was the genesis behind doing the writing? And, you know, can we chat about maybe a few of those pieces? So one of the things that I looked into coming back to Canada is, is, you know, I hadn't lived in Canada for, for nearly 20 years. And though I'd been involved in the ecosystem, for example, I've been a, an associate with Creative Destruction Lab, you know, for many years in San Francisco. Um, part of what I wanted to figure out was, you know, how can I have a positive impact beyond just my, my work with Panache? Um, one of the things that was fascinating to me was that unlike the United States, there was very little startup content created in Canada and almost none from VCs, right? So there's a couple of VCs that um, do podcasts. There's, there's one or two that occasionally write. And it's very different from, from what happens in the US where you have countless, uh, you know, VCs with blogs and podcasts and um, Twitter threads and, and all of these sorts of things. At the same time, a cultural nuance that I had observed during my time in, in the Bay Area was that Canadian founders weren't as intentional as, as American founders in seeking out information. And so one, one of the things we would see is we would see Canadian founders who didn't necessarily know some of the things that were taken for granted in the Bay Area, where, you know, you just, you would learn these things because everyone in the bar was talking about it, right? And, and some of these were, were um, you know, what I would consider fairly basic concepts, but some of them were more nuanced. Um, and I also in talking to a lot of Canadian founders, you know, they'd express that it is oftentimes really hard to get good sources of information because they would talk to advisors and advisors would have very strong opinions, but they may or may not have actually had that experience, right? Going back to our, our conversation on accelerators, you know, the, the, biggest difference between Silicon Valley as an ecosystem and the, and the rest of the world is that the majority of people in Silicon Valley have seen the inside of a rocket ship, right? There are so many billion dollar companies that have been in there that it's very common to say, yeah, I worked at this company that raised from Sequoia and sold for this and da, 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 da. There's just an incredible number of people who have the appropriate um, experience. And that doesn't exist in other, in other places. 
Uh, and so coming back to Canada, I said, okay, this is somewhere where I can have a positive impact. You know, there's a lot of things that I have, have learned both through experience and have, you know, worked with founders on at 500 startups and elsewhere. And I think there's some, some positive opportunity to share a little bit of this with, with the broader Canadian ecosystem. And if it helps founders get a perspective, particularly on topics that aren't necessarily talked about, right? Hence the, hence the name, the quiet part out loud. Um, then that's good for the ecosystem, right? And, and the goal, which was very, um, you know, very modest, uh, you know, and, and pat myself on the back, I'm actually stuck to it. You know, is I want to write one thing a week. Every week I'll do one post. You know, I'm not going to try to boil the ocean, but if I can write one post on one topic every week and some number of folks in the ecosystem, you know, and hopefully I can, I can have a bit of an impact as a whole. I'd love to jump into the quick fire round and I'd love to know what your favorite book is, or if you can't pick a favorite, maybe just something you're currently reading or read recently. So the book I'm reading right now is The Hobbit, uh, which I'm reading to my seven-year-old son. Uh, so we're going through that as our nightly routine. That's his first large fantasy book. So that's that's pretty fun to go back and, and see that through the eyes of, of uh, a kid. Um, in terms of books that I've, I've read recently, um, you know, one of the books I read uh, a few months ago that I thought was really, really insightful uh, was a book called Quit by Annie Duke. Um, for anybody who doesn't know Annie Duke, she was a, a famous poker player kind of during the, the early days of World Series of Poker, and that's where she uh, sort of built her name. Uh, she's actually become an expert in decision science, and she works with a San Francisco VC called First Round Capital on helping their founders make difficult decisions. And so she wrote this book called Quit, all about the psychology around quitting uh, and the stigmas around it. And the fact that if you're really making good business decisions, you need to equally think about quitting as you do all of the other um, you know, options, right? And if you think playing poker, if you were to never fold a hand, you could never possibly be a successful poker player. Um, in startups, we have gone through this period kind of 10 years ago of, of grind culture, right? And you had, had books like, you know, Ben Horowitz's The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And you had this sort of series where it was just like, you've got to grind, 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 grind. And, you know, that left a lot of founders with the incorrect idea that quitting is wrong, right? And, and in many cases, quitting is actually the best decision. If it's clear, for example, that a startup is not going to get to product market fit, then to you know go an extra three months hoping futilely that it'll suddenly emerge isn't a good use of your time. It's not a good use of investors' money. Um, and you know, there's actually better options in the long term. Uh, and I think this book is really, really um, insightful talking about a variety of different cases. It, it talks about a number of founders who went through it, including some Canadian founders. Uh, so there's anecdotes in there about you know, Stuart Butterfield uh, from Slack, Andrew Wilkinson. Uh, um, and it's, it's just a, a really, um, I think it's an important book uh, to help founders make better decisions and, and frankly, to help investors you know, think about things more holistically. What are you most excited about in the next year, personally and professionally? In the next year, I think it's going to be really interesting to see where the early momentum around LLMs and AI lands. Um, you know, there's a lot of promise. There's a lot of cool things that are coming up. It's not clear yet how many of them will turn into long-term actual value creating things um you know what percentage of, of what's being created is just you know cool and trendy and let's just move on to the next thing versus wow here's some genuine like world-changing value coming in here um and so i'm really interested in you know, kind of observing this and, and you know both through companies we've invested in and just the broader market to see you know where does this land what what happened what ends up there um you know i think from from a a professional standpoint you know we're really excited about the canadian ecosystem you know we think the canadian ecosystem is in an incredibly strong place um, founders are doing well um you know what we've seen is we saw founders as i alluded to earlier being 
appropriately cautious with their capital. And as we start to come out of this, this downturn, I think there's an opportunity for the Canadian ecosystem to really put on the jets and, and, and do some amazing things in the next five to 10 years. And a lot of that's going to start this year. How do you deal with hard times? You've been a founder, you've been an investor, yeah, you're a father. How do you deal with those hard times? I think the most important thing in general is to have a close network of people you can talk to. Um, in writing, I often refer to it as your pit crew, right? Some of those people should be in your space. You know, sometimes you need to be able to vent and, and talk about things that happened at work and you need the other people to understand it, right? You don't want to have to explain it to them. Um, and other times you need people who just have nothing to do with what you do. And you can vent and they can smile and nod and then they can change the subject to something that has absolutely nothing to do with work. Um, you know, I think being able to to rely on on people uh, appropriately and and you know have folks who can support you, have folks who can you know hear you vent and talk through things and give you words of encouragement, uh, who have no problem you know calling you on your bullshit because they've known you long enough, um, and you know, just can help you think about something that has nothing to do with the thing that's stressing you out at the moment. Um, you know, all of those are great. I think, you know, as a, as a father, I think it's fantastic. Like my kids do not understand what I do. And even if they did, they don't give a crap. Right. So, you know what? I can be as cranky as I want. And it's like, yeah, that's great. Come play trains with me. I do not care. Right. It's like, you know, I, you, you get brought, to, brought back to reality. I love that. And Chris, just to open up the mic to you quickly, where can people find you? I know you got like a pitch page, Quiet Part Out Loud. Uh, you're very active on social. We'll obviously link all those things, but where can people follow you and find you? Yeah, easiest place to follow me. You can go to chrisnewman.com. That's got my blog. It's got links to all my social. Uh, it's got a form where if you are raising capital, you want to reach me, you can submit your information there uh, and on all the social places. Awesome. Chris, this has been a great conversation. appreciate all your insights and your time and keep on writing. I'm loving it. So, Thanks so much, Evan. Really appreciate the opportunity. Have a great rest of your week. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.